Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. We have become seasoned veterans. Pre-show, Brad and I just hammered out like 17,000 different eventualities on what we'll do to record and when and with whom if a Patrick Kane signing happens with Detroit anytime over the next 72 hours. So you as a listener are officially notified that this is recording on Sunday at 6 p.m. So this is pre any Patrick Kane decision. Take the news as you will. (laughs) We have been hurt before, which is why we are planning as if we will be again. A thousand percent, whatever the most inconvenient time for us to discover this news. Uh, that is absolutely when it's going to happen. So if you, I'll just sit here the whole episode as you talk. I'll just refresh Twitter. Just in the off chance we can just start mid-episode on the news. That'd be great. Hey, and you know what? You're sitting in Evan's chair and that's what he does all episode anyway. Exactly. So that's awesome. So, and I'm not just doing this to keep up to date on a couple scores currently happening as well. <laughs> Folks, welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. We're not just going to talk about Patrick Kane today. Actually, very little about Patrick Kane this episode because the vibes are good. Detroit is on a three-game win streak. We have passed the you know arbitrary but very real Thanksgiving deadline to see who is a playoff contender and who's not. Detroit is looking good right now. There is some serious conversation to happen, you know, not just about individual players who aren't currently on the Red Wings like Kane and Sandine Pelica, but the Red Wings themselves. Hockey Town is a positive focus for this episode. The vibes are good for consecutive episodes, and we're going to take that. Oh, 100%. I'm daily checking the standings. Do you know how long it's been since I've done that? Like, I've not really cared about the amount of RWs or ROWs at this point in the season in a long, long time. There was a stretch last February I was checking pretty religiously, and that was about the only time since about 2018 I've even looked at the NHL standings. <laughs> In a way that where you're like, where's Detroit and how yeah. is it? Yeah. I'm not sorting by league and flipping it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that one hurt. Oh, that one was too real. Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast, folks. Here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, and more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And missing the good vibes today is Evan. He should be back with you next episode if he, you know, does make it back. Ominous tone, and I'll leave it at that, just because it's fun that way. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we are going to be reviewing Detroit's two most recent games since we last spoke. Really good wins over both Boston and Minnesota, so opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of, you know, team performances across the league. We'll be giving you an update on the Patrick Kane situation as it stands right now, giving you some insights that we have from talking to folks around the league what might be to come and that is all going to expire pretty much instantly once we stop recording we'll be talking about red wings juniors like axel sandin pelica and what he's doing in the shl over in sweden and we have some nhl news before we jump into overtime before that i want to let you know we announced last episode and uh, earlier in the week that grand rapids griffins and the winged wheel podcast have partnered up for Winged Wheel Podcast Night with the Grand Rapids Griffins. Yes, we're taking WWP Night at the LCA on the road to Grand Rapids. We'll be in Van Andel. January 27th, 2024, we'll be joining the Griffins for a live pregame podcast in the banquet rooms at Van Andel Arena prior to the Griffins game against the Belleville Senators. The live podcast is going to feature us, the host of the Winged Wheel Podcast, but more importantly, head coach Dan Watson, along with other Grand Rapids Griffins players. 
Get your tickets today, griffinshockey.com slash WWP. There's different kinds of tickets, different places to sit. Some of the tickets are, you know, just that ticket to the live event and the game itself. But some of the tickets, you get these sweet Grand Rapids Griffins Winged Wheel Podcast co-branded caps, similar to like the one I'm wearing right now if you're watching on YouTube, where we have the Detroit Red Wings and Winged Wheel Podcast officially co-branded hats. But this one is a very, very cool Grand Rapids version of that. So really excited to partner with the Grand Rapids Griffins on this. It's something that, you know, we've been working on for a long time. Get your tickets fast. They are limited. And of course, a portion of the proceeds from every ticket sold will benefit the Jamie Daniels Foundation. So again, griffinshockey.com slash WWP. You know, Brad, the Red Wings came back from the Global Series in Stockholm, and the mood after that was... A little somber, a little a little frustrated, I should say. You know, Lucas Raymond was the highlight of that trip for the fact that he was the only Swedish player on the Red Wings. That was his home kind of display in front of a home crowd, even though it wasn't the exact city he's from. And he's been doing really well. He's been Detroit's probably best player, one of their best players over the last little while. But even he was frustrated coming back from Stockholm. You know, after today's game against Minnesota, there was a lot of conversation about what Dylan Larkin said to the Red Wings locker room and the team understanding that they let some really important points slip away in ways that they shouldn't have. Their games against New Jersey and now Boston and Minnesota since then have been, in my mind, some of the most complete hockey games they've played all season. And this is almost a perfect recording of what we said last episode, but it's holding true. So let's start with the Boston game. Would you have predicted a 5-2 win against Boston on the road at this point? Yes, absolutely. Superman has his kryptonite, and apparently the 2023 Boston Bruins, that kryptonite is the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, before the New York Rangers ruined our fun and beat uh, the Bruins in regulation on Sunday, to that point in the season, which is almost December, the Bruins had one regulation loss to the Detroit Red Wings. Then they got a second, also to the Detroit Red Wings, which won Huge compliment to the Bruins to make it that deep into the season with two regulation losses. Like, that's insane. I that's I know people hate when we say nice things about the Bruins, but that's an unreal hockey team. Yeah, after last year losing Bergeron and Krejci, I, I don't think hockey media is actually as aware and taking it as seriously how good the Bruins are this year. Saying that, that's a huge credit to the Red Wings to go in and steal four out of a four possible points from the Bruins while giving them zero. And this game, much like the other win against the Bruins, was a game where the Red Wings controlled the bulk of it. Mm -hmm. The Wings smothered the Bruins. Uh, you know, we talked about it with New Jersey a bit. When other teams don't have their best, you have to capitalize. And obviously, the Bruins at their best are going to beat anybody no matter what they're doing this year, but the Bruins didn't have their best that game. And the Red Wings absolutely pounced, absolutely smothered them. And, you know, all of their goals for the most part were genuine manufactured offense, which isn't something we've seen a lot of this year, at least not lately, I should say going into the Sweden trip, just a, a complete game, just yeah. a complete 60 minute exactly the type of game plan you need to have to beat a team like the Bruins. Scoring opened up on the power play, which I think was important. JT Comfort with a perfect redirect off a Goss's bare shot. Uh, the power play turning on was something that the Red Wings, even in their wins, needed to focus on. We, we talked about that in previous episodes. After the hot start, they have just completely cratered. So to open with the power play goal was good. And then Alex Dabrinkit 
stripped rookie Poitra of the puck and stepped in on the breakaway and made no mistake to snipe that home. And that was, that's a hot start for Detroit. Against the Bruins, you need to kind of take the momentum. And like you said, Brad, like pounce, build on it. Don't let up just because you have the lead against a better team and play scared. So really important for Detroit to get out of that first period at the 2-0 lead. Became 2-1 and then Robbie Fabry finished beautifully. And again, this is just Fabry doing more of what I've been talking about recently. When he stays healthy, he actually does offer depth scoring and he has a scoring touch and you can spread that down the lineup. Credit to Daniel Sprong. That was a great pass from him across the the slot there. Fabry made no mistake. And that was 3-1. Danton Heinen made a 3-2. Dylan Larkin extended the two goal lead or the lead to two goals again, I should say, with a power play goal of his own and Perron from his own blue line from downtown scored the empty netter and that was a 5-2 win. Solid win also for Vili Husso, I should say. It was a good outing for him. And like you said, Brad, that was a pretty complete performance, as good as you can expect on the road against a really strong team. We talked about it in the New Jersey game. It's a dialed-in version of the Red Wings right now. It's not always like the sexiest, flashiest plays. Like, yeah, they debrink it, stealing the puck and going on a breakaway and sniping it. That's great. But the team is not making crucial mistakes or they're minimizing it. I still think they have a little bit of penalty trouble here and there, but they're minimizing it to a reasonable level. They're smothering who they need to smother and they're just playing solid, do your job, play the right way hockey to speaking, you know, coaching platitudes. Are they going to get that result every time against the Bruins? No, I think sometimes, you know, great teams like that are going to have better games, of course, but that was a deserved win and the result reflected what we saw on the ice. That was a perfect win in terms of the formula for how a middle-of-the-pack team beats a top team. We know if every team in the league is firing at 100%, the Red Wings are a fringy playoff team. Everybody's aware that. The Red Wings will tell you that. Where you can... There's there's three ways where you can really swing the balance of a game when you know you're... I don't know what the best word here is, outgunned. Mm-hmm. Goaltending, teams get goalied all the time. Red Wings haven't had a ton of that this year, and they didn't need that this game because they were all over the other two parts. Special teams, special teams are huge when you're playing a team that outmatches you. And I think they got two power play goals, but correct me if I'm wrong, that Fabry one came... Like right as it expired. Right after it expired, so I don't even know if that uh, fifth Bruins player factored into the play. So for all intents and purposes, three power play goals... And opportunistic offense, which is exactly what the Debrinket goal was. When you get a chance like that against the Bruins, you can't miss. And it was such, I love that Debrinket goal too, because it's the type of goal that makes the goalie look so bad because he doesn't move, but it's such a goal scorer's goal. There's nothing the goalie can do on that play. Debrinket comes in and he's not even into a shooting spot position or, you know, stance He's coming in like he might deke or he might faint or he might do whatever. Yeah. And then with no backswing, no warning, just fires it in a spot the goalie can't get. It it looks so bad on the goalie, but it is 100% not the goalie's fault whatsoever. For anyone who's wondering what a good shooter, like a a shooter who's genuinely better than other average NHL-level shooters, they can do that and make it look effortless. A lot of players can do that, but to do that on a dime with zero anticipation and just capitalize on the fact that the goalie didn't have time to set 
the play didn't have time to break the other way. And like you said, you just freeze him and understand that microsecond when you freeze him. Like that's what makes to bring it an elite shooter in the NHL. Yeah, nothing from that shot was telegraphed by no. the, by the time I forget, I think it was Swayman realized Dabrinkit was shooting. The puck was already 80% of the way to the net. Like it's perfect. There's, it's a pretty rough feeling as, <laughs> as either a defenseman or someone who turns the puck over to see the breakaway going the other way. You're not there to, to combat it. You already got beat and you just, you're relying on your goalie and you see that you've just left them out to dry in the worst possible way. And you just see them frozen there as the other player scores. And you're like, oh, I made a mistake and now that's the worst outcome. Yeah, yeah that must suck extra for Poitras as well, given that he's a rookie and he turned around and he saw the number 93 instead of like 27. Just like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> like the exact number one guy on the Red Wings, you probably don't want to do that to. So... You know, it's not all sunshine and roses from this game. There's one thing I want to talk about that was that's frustrating for me. And this is going to be such a, like some people are going to be like, oh, here's Ryan going off about something that doesn't matter. And if you're saying that, take a ticket. You and everyone else in my life are saying that. Here's my soapbox, though. Mason Raymond has not been in this <laughs> damn league for how long now? How long? It was funny a bit to start when Lucas Raymond came into the league and everyone was saying Mason Raymond. Mason Raymond has one of those hockey names, those names in sports where it just it rolls off the tongue and it just works so well that your your brain is Mason Raymond. Like you you just want to say it. He was in a, a big enough name in the league where you, his name got said a lot. Broadcasters knew who he was. He's a big personality on the ice. Invite Here's a, here's what I'll argue because this is um the Mandela effect. Mason Raymond was never a relevant player. He was a bottom six, like non-offensive, like depth guy. He was he wasn't a bad hockey player, but for all intents and purposes, he was Joe Valeno. Right. And but he made a long, successful career out of that. But he Lucas Raymond is already more relevant in the NHL than Mason Raymond ever was at any point in time. Mason Raymond played in a crazy Canadian market, though, so his name was just inflated everywhere. But, yeah, but we were just watching two American teams. I it, it drives <laughs> me insane. I don't like coming on and using our platform and, you know, slandering other people who are doing a job that I definitely couldn't do. I couldn't be a, a color commentator in the NHL today. I, I, if you put me out there, it would be so bad. It oh, would... no, I love doing this. It's punching up. They're more <laughs> successful than us, so it, we're allowed. That's how it works, right? So know that I, I'm not – this isn't something that I love to do, but I'm sorry. If you are calling a professional NHL hockey game and you are still regularly, regularly every time you see the Red Wings – play against your team that you call for saying Mason Raymond instead of Lucas Raymond. What are we doing here? The professional standards by which, you know, broadcasters hold themselves to are so high. And we know this, we, you know, we're close friends with Ken and we've seen the kind of work that Ken and Mick and everyone at Valley sports puts into, you know, preparation and execution on the, on the, the broadcast and Ken like cares about the details so much, like so much. And so it stands out in a, glaring way when you see other broadcasts do this with like it, it's like no care to correct it does it affect anything no but i'm just like wow you're still saying mason raymond like that is just <laughs> it's so bush league like what are you doing anyways that's my soapbox i feel terrible for anyone who had to watch the boston feed on that one let's move on 
So the Red Wings walked away with a, a win in Boston and coming back home with another matinee game against Minnesota today, which just wrapped up not too long ago, against a wild team that was, you know, coming in and struggling. They're they're not doing too hot. The Wild are not that team that they were in previous years where you're like, oh, Kaprizov's going off and Boldy's going off and, you know, everything's kind of coming together and the defense is playing up to standard. The Wild are, they're hurting this year. I actually think it's kind of an unspoken, it's not being covered very much in the NHL for how low the lows are for the Wild right now. So them coming into town, you would expect that Detroit would be able to control the game and and dominate the wild based on how they've played against much stronger teams in New Jersey and Boston. And that's what they did. A 4-1 win, lying back in net, which I think is important to talk about, which we will in a second here, lying back in net, and other than a very dull second period, at no point did I think Detroit was in danger of losing that game. Yeah, a bit too much of the defensive shell in the third period again. This is a recording, which really ended up favoring Minnesota on the shot clock. But it wasn't a ton of high danger chances. And even their one goal was like a double deflection. I think it hit Sider and then hit Erickson Eck beside the net and then bounced into the net. And yeah, this game wasn't great. The Red Wings did enough to beat a bad team. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the biggest compliment I'll pay them on the overall performance. Obviously, we can needle down to the details. They did well, and they did not do well. But, yeah, they uh, had a pretty good first period, controlled the play. That second period might have been the least entertaining period of hockey I've watched in a long time. Like, <laughs> I, I think us, and I and I made a joke about it on uh, Twitter, and then I saw a lot of people responding, same thing. Like, we're 15 minutes into the period. We all just kind of snapped to and remembered we were watching a hockey game. Yeah, it was... Very like out in space on that one. Yeah, just thank goodness Larkin scored because he just reminded us that we were all covering. Something. Exactly, like you've been staring in the corner of the room for like twenty seconds, and then you kind of snap to what happened? What? How did I get here? What am I doing here? Yeah. But other than that, yeah, it was a. It felt like a good road game for Detroit, even though it was in Detroit. Maybe the best way to put it. Yeah. So, uh, the the big storyline, obviously, being you know, I think he had. Almost 40 shots that game against and with Alex Lyon. Not a ton of like 10 bell saves, but hey, you can only stop the ones directed at you. He was solid. You're right. The defense has been playing really well in front of him. So, you know, his, what was it, 16 save shutout against New Jersey. That wasn't a tough test, but he did what he needed to. And today it was 38 shots and he stopped. Like He had some really good saves, but again, he didn't need to stand on his head. It wasn't a 38 save, you know, Alex Lyon saved the Red Wings. You're completely right. Scoring opened off of a really, really good setup by Lucas Raymond. He beat the high penalty killer in a... <laughs> that guy's going to see that tape a lot. That was not good. Lucas Raymond, as Mickey put it, he hung his jock off the clock, passed it over to Perron, who's back on the power play on his left wall, who scored. And credit to, to Perron. He's, after a slow start to the season, I think he's been really turning it on. And we're seeing much more of the speed that we saw last year from him in terms of production and his impact. So the Red Wings open scoring with the power play goal, which think back to our conversation from a second ago, it's important for them to be able to do those kinds of things and get the power play going early. Erickson Eck got a power play goal right at the end of the first period, which was a little bit deflating for Detroit, but they came out in the second. Dylan Larkin gave him the lead right back off of a Shane Goss' bare assist. And then Perron again on the power play for his 300th career goal, second power play goal of the game from Goss' bare and Larkin. 
And then Goss Bear got the empty netter for a four-point game from him. He has been just phenomenal all year, really. Like a little bit of a low spell there for a couple games, but Goss Bears, I think they said it was his second career four-point game, and he's just been that impactful for Detroit most nights. So a 4-1 win. The power play was productive. They looked dangerous on it. Perron, you know, being up to speed, I think is a really good story for the Red Wings when you talk about how are they going to sustain scoring when it's not always Debrinket and Larkin, et cetera. But yeah, you're right, Brad. It wasn't the most perfect win. It was a good one, though. It's the kind of game that they need to be able to play. Afternoon games have had a, a tendency to be a little bit sleepy for Detroit. And I think that's just when you're not a good team that's dialed in night in and night out, which is what Detroit you know, that's been the case for them for however many years now, most of this podcast existence. It's hard to turn your your brain on, turn the legs on for a matinee game. So to have two of them in a row and get the result is good. Detroit is back in an Atlantic Divisional seat at the time of recording. They're tied with Florida for points, but they're technically in third. Perron had his two power play goals, his 300th goal. Gosses bear four points. Lucas Raymond is on, I believe, a six-game point streak. Dylan Larkin is back to producing three-game goal streak for him. Great result. Yep. Every uh, function of the team was playing decently well today. Again, it was a bad team and they didn't have a good game. And on a side note, should just to circle back to a point you made earlier about Minnesota only having five wins or whatever it is, should they send the Oilers and the Sharks a gift basket? Because that's got to be the only reason people aren't talking about how bad the Wild are more regularly because there's two bigger dumpster fires in their conference. Yeah, the Sharks being like historically bad, especially to start the season, grabbed it. And then the Oilers doing a LA Angels, but in hockey <laughs> is always going to detract. So I actually feel bad for Minnesota because it's a great like hockey state. They do, they do hockey extremely well. High school over there. Like we all know the, the what's it called? The flow videos, which I think they've actually stopped doing. The hockey culture. Well, they, do moves, it at the, they do it at the tournament every year. Do they still do it? Oh, yeah. The hockey culture there is awesome, but they always kind of fly under the radar in terms of recognition, good or bad. But for, right now, yeah, they should be sending that gift basket. Yeah, it's uh, it's bad. And even watching today, I was wondering how the game was going to go because Minnesota, again, is bad. And the Red Wings are playing a matinee game the day after beating the number one team in the NHL. This is the textbook definition of a trap game. Mm -hmm. And again, this wasn't a masterpiece by the wings at all, but they still got the W, which again, beating Minnesota these days is not that impressive, but all things considered, this was, you have had all the makings of a trap game. You want to make the playoffs. You have to beat the Minnesotas when you get the Minnesotas, plain and simple. It's an is I don't want to say it's as important of a win as it is over a divisional rival on the road when they're a much better team, but it's as important of a win when you're trying to add points to the points column. Something I want to talk about from that game. Alex DeBrinket got a penalty for I think it was roughing or cross checking on Ryan Hartman. Rewind uh, thirty seconds earlier, Ryan Hartman went into the boards with DeBrinket in front of him, swept his leg behind him, had his hand cleverly just subtly right in front of Dabrinka. He was a much smaller guy, so Hartman didn't have to exaggerate the reach or anything and pushed back slightly, swung his leg forward slightly. It, was, it wasn't it was a very good demonstration of it, but anyone who's played or skated knows the Hartman was going for the accidentally on purpose look there, and he slew-footed him. 
I know it, it it might be borderline to some folks. It could just be called tripping with your leg, which they are different things. In my mind, that's a slew foot. Extremely dangerous play. When you have your your leg and your weight swept out from behind you on skates, not only do you fall back, you fall back violently. And the momentum, like that's how you crack your tailbone. That's how you crack your head off the ice. You can break an arm or a wrist when you're unexpectedly trying to brace yourself and you weren't ready for it. It's one of the more, like sometimes those things just happen when players get tangled or if they're scrumming along the boards and, and you know, you torque one way or another while you're wrestling that. I understand there's different ways to do it. In my mind, when you intentionally do it at speed like that, it's one of the most gutless things you can do on the ice. You need to have respect for your fellow player and you need to be able to trust that your fellow player for as dirty and rough and chippy of a game as hockey is, they're not going to pull some crap like that. And that's what Hartman did to Dabrinkit. Uh, credit to the refs who always blow our minds um, in their remarkable inability to miss the most obvious penalties of all time. They completely missed it. Completely missed it. How many times have we said that this year? For a terrible call, they completely missed it. Sider and Hartman got into it after, not too long afterwards. Hartman gave him a little whack. Sider went after him. And they both essentially did the same amount of roughing or slashing or whatever it is. And then the referees gave Hartman the extra minor because they knew they missed the call. And I made a joke on Twitter like, oh, don't worry, guys. The ref's going to apologize to Newsy after the game. And Lolone's going to get that uh, recognition from the officials that they missed the call. And that's really worthwhile because it gives them zero extra penalty minutes. And there's no actual function to punishment in the game. But I digress. Drink for those who are playing the I digress game. Just a stupid play by Hartman who now has a hearing with NHL Department of Player Safety. By the time you're listening, you might know the result, but he did get a hearing, and there was no call on the ice. I say, to quote myself from like 10 minutes ago, what are we doing here? Well, the NHL Department of Player Safety has such a sterling record handling incidents like these, I'm sure he'll get the minimum allowable fine. I, I'm, Which is zero. It's That's zero dollars. I'm fully expecting the maximum allowable fine because he got the hearing. I would like to see him get a game or two. I wouldn't be surprised. Hartman has a bit of a reputation. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. But I I, th- was, I know I'm going to see the $5,000 mark there. There was an attempted decapitation this week that didn't <laughs> yield a suspension. <laughs> He's not getting suspended. I Just, just for your mental health, uh, my guy, just don't even get the suspension thought in your head. It's not happening of maximum allowable fine will probably feel like a win at this point. We'll see who's right. I, I, my prediction is he gets a game. I'm willing to put that on the record before we know the results. So you, the listener will know who's decapitation, $5,000 fine. Hey, I heard a lot of accidentally on purpose about that one too. We'll talk about the true one later on, but there's not much else to say about this one other than it's disappointing that the refs can't get it right in the moment. If he got, you know, the appropriate penalty in the moment, then a fine on top of that would actually maybe be appropriate. But the refs mess with the flow of the game. And it also turns in, like, they're lucky it's Cider who is doing it. And Cider is is willing to get tangled, but Cider doesn't take it too far. What if that's, you know, Ryan Reeves or someone who will go and, and hurt a player because of it? And what if they don't go after Hartman? What if they go after Kaprizov? That's what this is what happens when the ref misses. Like a big hit is a big hit, and I, I'm not calling for penalties on big hits, but stuff that needs to be penalized and nipped in the bud like a slew foot. When you're not controlling the game, 
the players are going to take a license and then more players get hurt. A hundred percent. It's why the Ryan Reeves of the world are there, which I'm not getting into my <laughs> long rants about that, but everybody knows that's why they're there. And yeah, your point is exactly right. It's not good for the game and it's not good for player safety. And the one who probably, who would suffer the most there probably won't be Hartman. Hartman slew footed Alex to the Red Wings are not going to go and get retribution against Frederick Goudreau if Ryan Hartman doesn't step up the plate. Someone would try and grab Kaprizov, Boldy, mm-hmm. Rodine, someone who doesn't deserve it, and it would be bad for that player. It would be bad for the game. Thankfully, the Red Wings aren't one of those teams. And I'm not saying Hartman wouldn't step up to the plate if someone challenged him. I don't know. Kind of disappointed someone didn't from the Red Wings, but we've been down that rabbit hole enough. At least Cider did something. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it all comes down to the refs. If the refs call everything correctly, unless it's something really, really vicious, violent, or definitely pre-planned, usually the players let it go if they're getting power plays out of it. Usually. If there isn't, well, now they're pissed. Now they're pissed and double pissed. So I understand it's a tough job, but it's shocking how bad it is sometimes. Well, that's the Red Wings. They're on a three-game win streak. Like I mentioned, they are in an Atlantic Division seed as of right now. Their next two games are on Wednesday and Thursday. It's a back-to-back on the road in New York, 7.30 p.m., and then at home on the 30th against Chicago you're likely going to see an episode from us between those two games, so after the New York game, before the Chicago game. We are juggling some schedules right now as we're anticipating some moving around of timelines over the next couple weeks, so stay tuned, but that's what we're looking at. So right now, the Red Wings sit at 25 points, 11-6-3, 20 games played, third in the Atlantic Division. They're in a divisional seed. Now there are the Tampa Bay Lightning, who are in the first wildcard spot, one more game played, same amount of points, they could be, you know, any given night, Detroit could be in that wild card spot, but they're in the mix right now for the playoffs. That's where Detroit is. We're past Thanksgiving. They are firmly in the mix. They're not Boston running away with it with 31 points in 20 games, but they're right there with Florida. They're right there with Tampa Bay. They're right there with Toronto. And there's like, those are different storylines, right? Tampa Bay not doing as well as what we've seen Tampa Bay do in the past. And it's kind of expected. They've been good for so long. They don't have all their best players. Vasilevsky being out for so long, understandable. Toronto, they're doing you know the same play they do pretty often. They just have random stretches where they look like an absolute dumpster fire, but they have too much talent to stay down. And so I would expect that they're going to trend upwards. And then you know Buffalo, Montreal, Ottawa, still kind of trailing behind unexpectedly of Detroit. All 500 or below. This was uh, one thing I was looking at intently this weekend as the games wrapped up. Today, mostly. We've all heard the Thanksgiving cutoff, and I know Ken Holland was really, really big in his day about preaching that Thanksgiving stat. It's 80-something percent of teams who are in the playoffs on American Thanksgiving stay in the playoffs by the time April rolls around. And I actually started combing through that because obviously the Red Wings are in a playoff spot, American Thanksgiving, which bodes very well. 
And we're early enough in the season where there's still a lot of weird things happening, but we're deep enough where we have a really good feel for mm-hmm. what teams actually are. So I wanted to look at the Eastern Conference, which teams are not in a playoff spot that we can all reasonably ascertain that they will get there. For me, that was Carolina and New Jersey. They look like the two obvious. They're out of a playoff spot right now. They're absolutely going to be in a playoff spot come April. And that would hold up close to about 80% of teams staying in there. And then I did the next natural thing. All right, what teams in the playoffs are most likely to fall out? To which I was honestly expecting to have Detroit as one of the two most likely candidates to fall out. And then I looked at the Metro playoff spots. Philly's in there. (laughs) Anybody think that's going to hold? Washington's in there. Anybody think that's going to hold? So there is a reality here where the, uh, a likely reality, I would call it right now, as it stands, where five Atlantic teams get in and Carolina and New Jersey jump into the playoffs by displacing two Metro division seeds, which would mean the Red Wings stay in a playoff spot. Buffalo's below 500. Montreal's below 500. Ottawa's at 500. This is about as best case scenario as we could hope right now for where the Red Wings are. Now, it's still up to them to not let this go. We're 20 games in. We're 25% of the way into the season, which feels weird to say already. It feels like we're two games into the season. I know. It feels like it just started. But we're a quarter of the way there, and the Detroit Red Wings are firmly in a playoff spot. It's not like they're in eighth with a tiebreaker with three other teams. They're in. They're in a divisional seed. Tied for second. And the teams that we thought they'd be battling with for these spots, like the most likely candidates, we'll call it, your Ottawa, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, all 500 or below. This is, if the Detroit Red Wings bungle this, it's it's on them. They have banked enough points that as long as they play slightly above average hockey the rest of the way out, they should still get in. I... I was going to ask that question, and I agree. I, I think the Red Wings have done enough here, and they've shown enough where I, I still think the expectations that we held them to, you know, after that six-game win streak or whatever it was at the start of the season, I think it's fair to keep holding them. Like, they're getting the kinds of wins right now where, yeah, the ones where Debrinkit scores a hat trick or the power play goes off and, and scores five goals out of nowhere or, or someone puts the team on their back, those ones are fun, but they're they're winning games right now by playing good, solid identity systems hockey. They, they're they playing as the Detroit Red Wings. They're coming together and doing what they need to do. You know, Huso having a good game is good, but Lyon especially coming on recently and just they're getting the save in net as well. Like It's just comprehensive. Everything is coming together in the right way where they're doing what they need to do to win games. Is everyone as good as the last? No, I think New Jersey played pretty poorly against Detroit. I think Detroit played better against Boston than you know, other of the either of the two other wins in this three game win streak. I think the Minnesota game wasn't perfect, like you mentioned, but I also think that they were never really the worst team on the ice. They're playing the kind of hockey where, yeah, if they keep doing this over the course of the rest of the season, then are there going to be lulls and lows and some losing streaks? Yep, yeah, because that's what a you know middle to just above middle tier team in the NHL looks like, but it could add up to them holding on to a wild card spot or maybe even depending on how disastrous Toronto and you know Tampa Bay are 
they could hang on to a third divisional seed. I, I think it's fully in the cards. It absolutely is in the cards. And I don't think I'm at the tipping point yet of where I'm going to say if they miss the playoffs, it's a bad season. Because I think we all agreed before the season, as long as they're in the playoff race come April, even if they don't get in, it's probably a successful season. Yep. And there's still enough runway that they, if they play 500 hockey the rest of the way and just miss the playoffs, I think we could probably still call that a, a step forward, a, a successful season from preseason expectations. But if they're still sitting in a divisional seat in a month and then they miss the playoffs, I think we we would tip to the side of, okay, now it's disappointing because they haven't fluked their way into their wins this year. You know, a lot of this stuff at the beginning of the season felt unsustainable and we were right. Most of that has leveled off and we've even seen it. We even saw a long stretch where it went the other way. Dylan Larkin couldn't score a goal. Alex Brinkett couldn't score a goal. Like they went ice cold to balance out the early hot streak. And now over the last three games, this three game win streak, nothing's and no one's really blown the barn doors off. They've just played solid hockey. So if this is the truest form of the Detroit Red Wings, are they going to win every game like that against the Bruins and the Devils? No. With how good they played against those two teams, I can still confidently say had the Bruins been at 100%, the Bruins still probably win that game. But no, they didn't. They didn't. No one's 100% every single and night. And if the Red Wings play the bottom half of the league like they did the Bruins, they're going to win 90% of those games. Mm-hmm. So if this is the truest form of the Red Wings, which to me it feels like over the last week, this is as close to what I think and I thought they would look like when they're on their game, I have reason for optimism. Now, another cold streak, prolonged cold streak from either Larkin or Debrinkit or both, or the defense decides that they just don't want to defend anymore, which we've seen for stretches this year. All bets are off. But 25% of the way through the season, we've seen an extreme hot streak, an extreme cold streak, and now a streak of what feels sustainable. So, I, th- I think we're at the point we've got a pretty good, love the word, vibe for what they are. Yep. They're, they f- they're playing like the team they should be or that they can be. And again, going back to that quote, I think Goss Bear told Daniela Bruce, it was, I, I saw it from, where Larkin rallied the team after the, the losses in Sweden and said, like, what's our identity? What kind of team are we going to be? And it's important to really kind of lean on something you said in there, Brad. This isn't fueled by unsustainable performances like we've been talking about. Yeah, JT Confer has 12 points in his last 10 games. He's been excellent. But Andrew Kopp's also not really performing that well. Michael Rasmussen has not just not taken a step forward based on the production we've seen in recent years. I think he's actually taken a step backward. But Shane Gossespierre has been a revelation on defense in terms of production. Like It feels balanced in terms of, yeah, some things are going pretty well and that might not always be the case, but some things are also going pretty poorly and that might not always be the case. So... I think the point place they're playing at right now is just a shade under 103 points over the course of an 82-game season. I don't think Detroit's a 100-point team. I think I projected them at, what, 91 or 94 points, and I thought I was being optimistic. If they get into the 90s and they're even like a shade away from the playoffs, I agree with you. That's a successful season. So it's a long season. The vibe and the tone you're going to hear from us is going to change a lot of times in both directions over the course of the rest of the year. But you know, through this kind of Thanksgiving marker, 
this is for multiple different reasons, the best possible outcome I think you could have expected from this roster after looking at it on opening night in October. I saw a tweet today that made the Patty side of me real happy. I forget who sent it out. I think it was one of the national uh, hockey guys. And I know it's only 25% of the way through the season and I'm not ready to count my, you know, chickens before they hatch, but pointed out, hey, remember before the season when every hockey expert on the face of the earth said Ottawa and Buffalo were a step ahead of Detroit? About that. <laughs> the, even if we miss the playoffs, but we finish ahead of those two, I'm still taking a victory lap. <laughs> yeah. And that matters too. Like it matters. So more to come on that. We'll, we'll definitely be talking about that as time goes on here over the next couple of weeks. But... Something else that matters in terms of Detroit winning, and this will be a quick update because we've been talking about it ad nauseum for how many episodes now, but Patrick Kane wants to go somewhere where he thinks he can win. And, you know, hockey players and hockey media and hockey fans, we have a tendency to just react to things in the moment, and I don't think this situation is any different. You know, if Kane is thinking about three finalist teams and Buffalo is one of them, and they're playing like they are right now, you know, below 500 and not really trending too well. And Florida, you have to give credit to Florida and what they're able to do. Like you mentioned last episode, Brad, the cap isn't real and they can probably make that work. And Detroit is right in there. You know, it's been widely reported and we've talked to some people ourselves. Detroit is very much in the mix here, like heavily one of the last three favorite teams to land Patrick Kane. Elliot Friedman reported that there's been a lot of information collected on and by Detroit regarding Patrick Kane. Like, don't get this twisted. I know some people have a hard time believing it. Detroit's in it. Steve Eisenman's in this. So reservations aside about his injury, and I'm one of those people who's wondering how is he going to come back from this hip resurfacing? I don't know how this is actually going to go. Detroit's factoring in here, and if you're Steve Eisenman, you're looking at this win streak and saying that could not be better timed than right now while we're trying to convince him to sign. Now, the disclaimer here is that, you know, we're recording right now on Sunday evening and the understanding, at least as it's been out, is that Patrick Kane's going to decide, quote unquote, early in the week. Is that honest? Is that Patrick Kane trying to push people so he can get a multi-year contract rather than a single year? I'm not certain, but all of this might be expired by the time you listen. Yeah, should we just put your editing skills to the test? I can just sit here and go, frankly, I'm a little surprised that Patrick Kane signed with. I think it's overall <laughs> a good move for them. It's a uh, gamble worthwhile. I really think he'll fit well on their line with. <laughs> I'll describe like the NHL 24. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... That episode of The Simpsons, I'll just hold up the beer mugs in front of mouth. The Super Bowl between the. Denver Broncos. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just do that for the next 20 minutes with Patrick Kane I landing think, possibilities. I think two more years of this podcast, and we'll have said enough words where I can probably soundboard us <laughs> and we can take a few more episodes off a year. Evans is already done. We already know all the words he knows. Yeah, well, what else is there to say? That's, Which actually, unironically, feels like the most yeah. apt sentence about this Patrick Kane saga to this point. Yep. it's We were talking in, in my kitchen before we came up to record here, which is... You know, even if Detroit or any other team does break and give him a multi-year contract and he ends up needing to be LTIR'd uh, on long-term injury reserve, I should say, for for folks who aren't certain, it's not without risk, but 
it's still like, okay, well, unless you're in a specific cap situation where that can hurt you, then all that's lost here is the owner's money. The, the situation is what it is. And until Kane makes a decision. Again, it's a contract of probabilities, a decision of probabilities. What's the more likely scenario here? Patrick Kane signs, let's call it a two-year deal for a modest amount of money, somewhere, let's call it four to five mil, and is a somewhat productive 40 to 50-point player. That We'll call that positive option in this scenario, or the negative option. His hips are toast, he goes on LTIR, the wings get capped out, and have multiple expensive players also go down long-term where they over- go on their LTIR. What's the more likely scenario there? I'm going to say the positive options, the more likely outcome, just because the wings getting capped out, probably not going to happen. Multiple expensive players having to go on LTIR, also not super likely. Eh, knock on wood, we're not going to speak that into existence, but yeah. again, it's, it's just probabilities. So would I prefer if uh, Patrick Kane signed a one-year deal? Yes, absolutely, a thousand percent. But I understand the gamble because I think it's a more likely to be positive than negative gamble mm-hmm. on a two-year contract. More than that, okay, then we're going to have a conversation about how those probabilities shift. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. If there's... The, the the timing of this will dictate whether or not we have an emergency episode. We have a lot of, we have some pre-recording that's going to happen this week too. So I would love to tell you exactly when you'll hear from us if it does happen and it is Detroit. It's just going to depend on if this news actually breaks when we think it will. Regardless though, we'll be with you to talk about it. If it's Buffalo or Florida or somewhere else, then, you know, it'll be small news. But if it's Detroit, we'll bring you all the coverage that's necessary and we'll get takes and content from folks around the league. On that note, let's check Twitter just in case. I just checked. <laughs> I just checked and he didn't sign. I am, again, like it doesn't matter how good we get at this, at this whole podcasting thing. It still doesn't feel like I'm fully braced for when news breaks and we're able to cover it or not. You know, I think Patrick Kane's actually waiting for Evan to get back so he can have the full cohort of Wingwheel podcast hosts to talk about it. Onwards, so we don't have too much content that just withers away into the ether. Axel Sandin Pelica and what he's doing in the SHL. Detroit's second of their two first-round picks from the 2023 NHL draft. Obviously, they took Nate Danielson with the first of them. Sandin Pelica came in from the Islanders pick, which they got in the Heronic trade with Vancouver, 17th overall. If you remember back, you know there were varying opinions on the players selected, but overall it was you walk away with Danielson and Sandin Pelica. Some folks, myself included, might have thought that it would be in the reverse order, but you're happy with that haul, especially because Sandine Pelico is such a talented player with a huge offensive ceiling. We have a bit, and it is, you know, it's a joke, but it also it's pretty descriptive of how exciting his offensive potential is, is, you know, Brad, you'll often say he's the new version of your favorite non-Red Wing, Eric Carlson. That was a bit. <laughs> that was, Ryan, we're a podcast. That's what I call analysis. <laughs> Axel Sandin Pelica is, I believe, leading the SHL in scoring amongst defensemen right now. He has, and I, I think I have these stats right, he has the most goals for any SHL U19 defender since 1983. And okay. his, I think he's actually tied for the all-time record on that one now. And he's 
eighth his eighth goal tied him with Lakaramaki for the most goals and points among U twenty players in the SHL. Forwards included. Yeah, because Lakaramaki's a forward. Yeah. That's nuts. His like we we said last episode that if you had him on the power play right now, like that would be as of right now, his offensive ability would translate to more production on the power play. You you can't exactly stick him in the NHL right now. You don't he probably wouldn't be an all-star game one. You know, it's very hard for smaller defensemen to come in and be lights out, especially offensively in the big boy league that is the NHL. But what he's doing in the SHL right now, you compare it to indicators of really good players from the past. This isn't just measuring really well for Detroit. This is like the good kind of alarm bells are going off of, oh, we might have a thing here. Yeah, this isn't a guy. And I don't think he's as far off as people say, because one, it's the SHL. This is one of the top men's league in the world, and he's excelling. Uh, he's, I think he's outproducing Marco Casper uh, from last year as a defenseman. And I think I even saw a tweet that he he's challenging for the U19 all-time goal record in a season for SHL players. Like, counting forwards. Like, it's nuts. He doesn't play like a small defenseman, and I know we talked about that a lot with him going into the draft before we even knew he was a Red Wing, because you see, you know, five foot ten, five foot eleven defensemen with, you know, the gaudy point totals in junior and at the World Juniors and stuff like that and the U18s, and you immediately get this picture in your mind of what he is. And to which we've been talking about a lot of Eric Carlson traits there, except he doesn't play like a 5'10", 5'11 defenseman. He's physical. He defends well. He plays his gaps well, which is, I know, your thing. Yeah. I'm but, such a boring hockey watcher. Yeah. <laughs> but the offense is the stereotypical, what you would expect of a 5'10", undersized defenseman playing at these levels. Mm-hmm. He he's, I don't want to call him a unicorn because there are a lot of players of his mold. He just does it better than most of them. And, you know, being a right shot, given the state of the Red Wing system is an added bonus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I know, I know it's become funny how I continually, you know, gush over Eric Carlson 2.0 here. And I've been doing it since before we drafted him and it's only ramped up to cartoon levels since we drafted him. Obviously it's way too early to take my victory lap. Let me tell you though, I'm mapping out the route. It's straight down Woodward. You're going to be as dressed as Chris Osgood was in the booth in that picture. You think I'm putting on that much clothes? (laughs) By the way, happy birthday, Ozzy. Yeah. Hope 35 treats you well. It's yeah, this has been so far from the moment he was picked the moment he was available for Detroit they made the pick and what you've seen since it's been one of those picks where you're like yes before yes during and hell yes since because the Red Wings could absolutely use this like you mentioned in the system Brad some people said well what's going to happen because Sider is their number one right defenseman and the actual answer to that is you know how many teams don't even have a single number one right defenseman if you have two players who can be interchangeable in that slot like it's almost a miss, a misnomer or like a, a misinterpretation of the way a roster should work. If you have multiple players not on your top pairing who could be top pairing level, that's really that's a great problem to have, especially when you're used to having zero players at that top pairing level. I had 
I, I, I am completely incapable of editing TikToks. I like no clue how to do it. But when you were talking there, you gave me a trend that is actually happening that would apply to this perfectly. Have you seen that? The one of the guy, he's just duetting like a guy grabbing an icicle and smashing it. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. And then it burst into Creed. Can you take that? But <laughs> Axel Sandine Pelica getting drafted by the Red Wings. Yeah. I, first of all, love that trend. Yeah. And secondly, yeah, like that was exactly <laughs> the feeling. Again, I really maintain if they walked away with Sandine Pelica at nine and Danielson at 17, I would have been like, that's where I would expect those guys to go maybe a little bit later than expected on Danielson. And I'm thrilled with that outcome. So in the end, Danielson had a bit of a pretty good week too, eh? Yeah, he's been really turning it on. It was a slower start than people expected for him when he went back to the WHL, but he's been turning it on. He's been scoring a lot more lately. Underrated part of his uh, scoring stretch there with Brandon? Their uh, post-goal celebration, 10 out of 10. Elite level, where they all gather in a circle and bow to each other and then go run the train up the bench. So good. I love that. That's pure junior hockey with the boys bullshit. <laughs> that is absolutely like a hundred percent. And my favorite, there was a couple where like the defensemen were really far off. So three of them stood there in a semicircle, literally waiting for them to come in to do it. Ah, uh, just yes. Pure junior hockey bullshit is the best way to frame it. Yeah. And I love it. Good news for Detroit with their juniors outside of Detroit. Let's jump into some NHL news here quickly. Jacob Truba got a $5,000 fine for whacking Trent Frederick in the head with his stick. Whacking, is that the right word? I feel like a baseball swing is more appropriate. It was a a funny moment, and I haven't seen every angle, but I've seen a lot of angles, and the best I can come up with, you know, from my experience playing hockey and understanding when your, your weight gets shifted like that and you're... You're holding your stick with two hands and all of a sudden you're like kind of falling backwards. And Troop is a big guy, of course. My best interpretation of it is he was swinging his stick to start, not at Frederick's head. As his body was angled upwards, it was kind of one of those accidentally on purpose things in terms of the swing. I don't think he was trying to whack him in the head. I, like there's players who are dirty, but a lot of them aren't complete morons to, you know, redo the Marty McSorley incident and and try to two-hand someone in the head. You can kill someone like that. And uh, admittedly, it kind of clipped Frederick, so it, was, it wasn't a god-awful incident, but it just seemed very accidentally on purpose to me. So was the outcome terrible? No. Was the intention to hit him in the head? I don't think so. Was the intention to hit him with a stick? I think, yeah, definitely. And he tried to play it off like it was him, you know, being off balance. I understand the NHLPA looking that, at that and saying, okay, uh, maybe not the worst thing in the world based on the outcome. So we're just going to give you a fine and a warning. But to me is like, that could have been awful, awful. And he, he made contact with his head. You have to be responsible for your stick. I thought of the Rasmussen two game suspension for his thing on Krejci. And I was like two games for that. So I don't understand. I, I don't understand the, the juxtaposition between those two. Nobody does. I don't think the department of player safety does. I, the wheel feels real at this point. I think you're right in the sense that he wasn't trying to get him in the head. The velocity of that stick coming around definitely leads me to believe the swing was on purpose. Like, oh, screw you, guy. I'm going to get a PCU on the way down. Like, how dare you? 
and probably meant to hit him in the arm, which even at that point, that stick was moving pretty damn fast. Even if that connected with an arm or a rib, that could still do some damage and was probably worthy of a suspension. The fact he got him in the head and it wasn't a suspension, I, I'm at a loss. Like I genuinely have no clue because one thing, you know, I'm not a smart man. But the one thing I think I can pride myself on that I've been able to grasp over the last, you know, however many years and I've really grown to understand is even when I disagree with something, I've done a good job of understanding what their train of thought is. Saying I would be more severe on this, but I understand what they were thinking and how they got to that conclusion, even if that's not the same conclusion I would draw. Situations like this, I am at a loss. We have seen multiple suspensions, even if they weren't nearly long enough over the years for swinging a stick and hitting a guy in the head. Everything from one game from Duncan Keith tomahawking a guy to what did McSorley get? 25 games for what probably was a little closer to this in terms of velocity and where he was swinging. Not that it was as intentional as McSorley's. I don't think it was the same. I, I no, would have it was, a hard time categorizing them as the same. Yeah, they're not. But again, a one-handed swing coming straight down versus a baseball swing catching a guy on the side of the head. I'm just talking about the yeah. actual okay. physical movement. Every one of those yielded a suspension from 1 to 25 games. And most people were infuriated at the 1. I... I don't know how they came to this conclusion. They had to have believed this was a thousand percent an accident, which watching that video, anybody who's played hockey, I do not know how you come to that conclusion. The only thing that might have been not as intended was where the stick actually made contact. Which is absolutely fair. And again, I will side with, I don't think he was trying to hit him in the head. But here's the reality of the situation. He hit him in the head. That's right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> what is what is the the line that's parroted out for good reason every time there's a stick infraction? Even if it's not intentional, you have to be responsible for your stick. Unless it's on a shot follow through, if you high stick someone and it obviously wasn't malicious and like let's say you're just swinging your arm back because it got stuck behind a player or the boards and you clip someone with just the very tip of your blade. Unfortunate. Not intentional. Didn't really, you, you weren't trying to disrupt the flow or an outcome in the game. It's still a penalty. You have to be responsible for your stick. I don't know, a $5,000 fine doesn't really. Truba tried to hit someone with his stick with a two-hander, and it was a bad, not terrible, but a bad outcome. You need to teach him that he can't do that. I think Truba is one of the best players in the league in terms of pissing off opposing fans and walking that line so close to being over it. Sometimes he goes over, but so many of his hits are like old school, rock'em, sock'em, hockey, vicious. Like they cause concussions, but they are just on the line of like the rules say he can do that. I think he is elite in that regard. But when he crosses it in a different way, this wasn't a, a you know openized hit. You need to nip that stuff in the bud. I don't know. Uh, that one to me was off. Is it the end of the world? No, Frederick seems fine is what it is, but the Department of Player Safety, we'll see how I feel about them once we know the result of the the Hartman hearing. So, more things that are going to be expired by the time you're hearing this. We'll see what happens there. But anyhow, that's NHL news. 
We are going to jump into overtime here on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Overtime is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash Podcast. If you want to support the Dub Dub Club, you get access to our Winged Wheel Podcast exclusive Discord, which is a fantastic community. You're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. For example, we're giving away two tickets to every Detroit Red Wings home game this season, the vast majority going to our Patreon supporters. As well, you also get access to all of our bonus overtime episodes and any bonus content that we put out. After every episode, we record you know, a little bonus thing. We let loose, answer any questions we didn't get to for the main show, have some fun. It's a good time, and you get access to those. By becoming a patron, you allow us to do things like host Winged Wheel Podcast Nights at the LCA and with the Grand Rapids Griffins. You allow us to support the Jamie Daniels Foundation, put out more great content like producing Expected by Whom, a show hosted by Prashanth Iyer and Sean Shapiro. Make sure you check them out and lots more. So again, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. One that I want to get to, it's not from a patron to start, but someone tweeted out, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who it is. And it's been a common sentiment that's come through a few times from fans and listeners, which is, you see how Philip Ronick's playing in Vancouver. It's not just Quinn Hughes is performing well over there. Philip Ronick has, what, like two goals and 20 assists or something like that? And uh, Park that apparently broke the uh, sound barrier. Yeah, he is, well, that's Hronik's canon. And some people have been saying, how do you feel about that trade now, knowing how well Hronik's producing? And he's basically continuing his unreal play from last year with Detroit. And the way I think about that personally is that's a win-win trade. Like Detroit wasn't trading a bad player in disguise. Detroit was trading one of their best defensemen for a high return. I think they got that high return. I think we just talked about Axel Sandin Pelica, who was the literal pick they made from the Hironic trade. If you're a Red Wings fan, are you thinking, yeah, we could use Philip Hronik right now? Sure. No one would ever see Philip Hronik and say, yeah, my team, my hockey team wouldn't be made better by that guy. But they replaced the current production with Goss's Bear, and they got a unbelievably promising future asset in Sandine Pelica. I think it's a smart trade, and if you're a Vancouver fan, you have to be happy with the, the gambit. That didn't look good at first because he was hurt. I don't know. We'll see how we're doing on January 1st. Yeah. Which, for those who are wondering, is when Shane Gostas bears eligible for an extension. He's going to get paid, man. I don't know by whom. I hope us. I think the Red Wings hope so, too, but his price has only gone up. Oh, yeah. It's not like he's playing. This is Gostas bears doing. He's playing lights out. He's not being carried by anyone. It's not like he's playing with Quinn Hughes, you know, just to put that out there. Do you expect Vancouver to hang on to this? Playoff spot or like they'll hang. They'll, they have too much bank to not make the playoffs. That'd be catastrophic. Yeah, I think they're still a playoff team. Maybe a third divisional seed or a wild card. They've already cooled off a bit. They're on a bit of a cold run now. Which you know they were on the PDO bender of all PDO benders to start the season, and now it's regressed and swung the other way. And it's all balancing out. Like the Red Wings, their heater was just more extreme. Yeah. All right. Comments and questions from our patrons. Brandon Bruska says, how's Nate Danielson been? Don't really follow the CHL much, but he has a strong preseason. Any chance we see him for the classic nine-game stint? As we mentioned, he's with Brandon, the Wheat Kings, and the WHL. He had a slower start. The Wheat Kings aren't, they're not surrounding him with the best talent. It's not a team that is challenging for the Memorial Cup, to put it lightly. But he has heated up. He's scored. I think they got beat pretty bad, but he had a shorthanded snipe, I think it was, last night or recently. He scored a bunch in his last four or five games, turning it on more now. Will we see him for nine games? 
Yeah, we won't see Danielson mid-season for a call-up. It just doesn't work that way. It's, I don't think it's ever happened where a team has called a player up from the CHL mid-season outside of very rare emergency basis. That being said, at the end of the season, if Brandon, let's say, doesn't make the playoffs and the Red Wings or Griffins are still playing. And he doesn't get traded. Yeah. Then he could come up yeah. and play however many games are left and it would count all the same as if he played five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten games at the beginning of the season. All the same uh, rules apply. And by traded, I don't mean from the Red Wings. I mean, it's very common when you have a very high-end prospect in any of the CHL leagues who is about to graduate out of your system and you're not a good team. You trade that player to a different team in that league who's making a, a playoff run in whatever respective league for a bunch of future assets. And that's when you get into trading picks from like five, six years from now. And CHL trades are so funny. It's like Shane Wright traded for four first round picks and five second round picks. And it, it, like a, it looks like a cat friendly armchair GM trade, but it actually happens. From draft picks literally six years from now, it's happened. I remember I read a quote from a, I think it, I think it was OHL, but we'll say a CHL GM. He's like, I feel after that trade uh, was a question from a reporter, and he's like, well, I just traded an 11-year-old, so it feels a little weird. <laughs> yeah. So if his season could be extended if he's traded to a very competitive team, and then all of a sudden he's playing not just playoff games, but you know maybe even Memorial Cup beyond that. So we'll see. Third Man In says, like many recent years, Larkin started hot and is now playing through some undisclosed injury. It is noticeably less than 100%. All things being equal, aren't the Red Wings to the point where it actually would be better for Larkin to sit out a few games and heal up, assuming that's what it would take? I don't think so, and I think it's because of this. He's just really banged up. Like, uh, I think it's gotten a little bit better, but it's one of those, like, it's just kind of banged up and bruised. I think some of it happened in that Boston game from Wingville Podcast Night on November 4th. You're worse off by not having him in. Like, he's your number one center you're not really getting too much by having him sit out because him playing through it or not won't really affect the timeline of healing. Now, we have seen Larkin play through some injuries where you're like, I actually don't know if it's better to shut him down or not. And they do, they have in the past shut him down, but this to me is just a, he's banged up. And it's been better of late. Well, in the past, it didn't matter for the standings. That's right. It does now, so they're weighing that as well. So this one, and a few people have mentioned this one, but the Mexinadian says, so Huso and Lion tandem looking to move Reimer. And we actually didn't talk about that enough in the main show. So let's talk about it here. Alex Lyon, again, is he standing on his head stealing games? No, because I don't think he's had to, but he's been solid. And solid is better than most games what Detroit has been getting from Huso or Reimer. So is this the tandem now? I think so. Yeah. I think the main question here is, does Alex Lyon win simply just the Vesna, or does he also get the heart? Uh, you know, they might not want to give him too many trophies to have to carry home. <laughs> does he have <laughs> the heart of a lion? He's He's been good. I think at this point, I asked the question of, did he win Detroit's net? I don't really think it matters. I think Derek Lalonde's going to go with whoever's winning him hockey games. That's kind of what he's done. It took him a long time to get in the rotation. Uh, you know, Lyon wasn't in Derek Lalonde's rotation for, you know, the first until after or mid Sweden trip. And that's later than what a lot of people were expecting or even wanted. But 
as long as he's playing as he's playing now, he'll be in that rotation. I think Reimer is more likely to be the odd one out. And if Reimer gets traded, I think that depends on Edmonton or it depends on other teams, right? I think if they tried to to make a move, they could. It's just about maximizing assets and, and what's worthwhile. They're not really in a crunch to bring or to use that roster spot for anything else right now. But if they were, then you might see a move accelerated. Man, he's got a 952 save percentage. Yeah, he's stopping pucks right now. Give Walman the heart says, Raymond is absolutely our best player right now. What do you think an eight-year deal for him would look like? And what about a bridge? I think Raymond would want a bridge, much like Cider, because I think they know their best days are still ahead of them. And they would like to prove that. I think right now on an eight-year deal for Raymond, probably somewhere between, to give a very broad range, seven and 8.25. Yeah. Somewhere in that range. Uh, probably closer to seven. Obviously, that's not what he'll push for, but I think that would be the range. There's been a lot of players of his caliber who have actually signed very similar deals over the last couple of years between Boldy, Josh Norris, et cetera, et cetera, that you can kind of yeah branch off. Uh, of what his would look like. Kind of funny him playing Boldy right now, and the, the script is flipped than compared to what it was recently, where people are you know thought the world of Boldy, who's struggling so far this season, and we were saying, well, why would he get Boldy money when Boldy's playing better? And now Raymond's going to be like, we just played Boldy, and I was better than him. Why would I get Boldy money? I want more. Yeah, exactly. Funny how these things change rapidly. Uh, Laporta Potty, funny Lions-themed name. By the way, the only football we're going to be talking about is Michigan beating OSU. We don't have to talk about the Thanksgiving game. Uh, says, any chance Sandine Pelic is a full-time Red Wing next year? I think there's a chance. I'll Not call a it a one. low chance, but a chance, yeah. If, if Red Wings of lower caliber can make the team out of camp like they did in previous years, I don't think you can count out Sandine Pelica. Don't count on it, but don't count him out. Clint Banesh says, this might seem like a weird question, but if a team's prospect has good line chemistry with a player who will still be draft eligible in the upcoming year, how much of a push would they try to get that other skater? It's not a dumb question, and it happens more often than you think. I don't think it's terribly common where teams try to grab line mates like they go all out and that's part of their plan, but certainly if it's an option, it's an incentive to say, like, yes, this is our core player and we know he has insane, like, league notable levels of chemistry with this other player. That's a plus in that player's column, which is why we'll draft him over Nate Danielson or Axel Sandin Pelica or whatever the good prospect is there. I don't know. I don't think it rockets a player up a board, but kind of like a tiebreaker or, you know, gives a player a slight edge over another player. Listen, I would have said Buffalo passing on Zach Benson where he was available would have been insane to begin with. But the fact they already had Matt Savoy. Mm-hmm. Probably made that decision a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. Gord Sinclair says, what are your top three Red Wings jerseys of all time? It's been a while since we fielded one of these. Uh, home red, away white, one, two. And then, man, there's so many good options for number three. The red and cream one from the Big House game is always up there. That's my number one. Then the 08 Winter Classic one's always up there. Oh, no, for me. How am I forgetting my obvious number three? The barber pole. Yeah. The yeah. white and red one, to be clear. <laughs> oh, you don't like the one we have on the chair for Evan? It's fine. It's not as good, though. I have the Detroit versus Toronto Big House Winter Classic red jersey. That's my number one. Away white's number two. Home red, number three. 
I, the Red Wings have had very few bad jerseys, I'll say. Like, there's a lot in there where someone was like, how are you leaving out the Wrigley Field Winter Classic? I'd say it's a good point. <laughs> it's a great jersey. Okay, moving on here. Lars Thorzell says about a quarter into the season and we're in a playoff spot. Bloody awesome, I'd say. I'm guessing you've now spoken plenty about Lyon, but I have something more for you. It's not that just he's making saves and winning the games. He's playing style-wise in a way that's very uh, settling for the team. No chaos, no unorthodox flailing, just solid saves with very nice rebound control. He's exactly the goaltender Detroit needs to help a defense prone to self-destruction. Skill-wise, we might have three go- close to equal goaltenders, possibly with the edge to Huso style-wise so far. Lyon looks like the better fit. Do you agree? Also, Axel Sandin Pelka is still damn fantastic. Cheers, boys. I believe it was Cody Stark last episode who said, who's a, a goaltender, offered a lot of the same insight. And I think it's a really good point from Larch and Cody. Like it's calm, settled, consistent goaltending is what you need for a defense that's still very much not top of the league. Like how many games this year is Detroit's defense going to bail them out? You can count on one hand, I'm sure, by the time 82 games comes up. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, the rebound control is a nice, uh, we'll call it a bonus feature. Yeah. Orange Sunquist says, in a long-term sense, I think we're all happy we didn't sign Parise and Suter in 2012. But that being said, in 2012-2013, the Wings go up 3-1 in the second round against Chicago and lose that series 4-3. If we had Suter and Parise this season, uh, that would have pushed us to the conference finals and possibly to a cup final. Would a Stanley Cup victory that season be enough to justify the huge burden those contracts would have put on the team long-term? One Stanley Cup is worth any contract. 100%. 32-team league? Yeah. That that's that's a funny question because I do think they did dodge a bullet based on yeah. how Suter and Prize worked out for Minnesota. Like Minnesota is a team that's struggling right now and they're extremely handicapped by those buyouts. But uh what else did Detroit do at that time? Right? It's not like they were rebuilding the most efficient way. I don't know. I'm not gonna sit here and say, yeah, it absolutely would have been a good move, because when you can look at it categorically and say it's a bad move, but we got better draft picks while Minnesota was mired in mediocrity. Yeah. One thing we didn't note was uh, Jake Wallman's been out with illness. Hopefully we see him back in soon. So between him and Larkin taking maintenance days, you, you hope they're able to get back to full health. Uh, credit to, I think Jeff Petrie played a good game today, actually. He wasn't noticeable. Big yeah. win. That's that's what you want to see. Yep. Okay, let's wrap up this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, Stay tuned. Follow along at Winged Wheel Pod on Twitter. There's going to be a lot happening over the next little while. If Patrick Kane news comes out, if anything else comes out in the world of, you know, emergency news, we'll be back. We'll let you know whether it's going to be on our Wednesday episode or for an emergency episode between now and then. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you're a new listener, welcome to the show. And if you're a listener of old, thank you for hanging in there with us. It's nice to get to from the lows of the rebuild to talking about three-game win streaks now, and it's not for the first time this season. To all of our Patreon supporters, you are the ones who make this possible. Patreon.com slash Podcast if you want to support the show. Again, all the great benefits, and you allow us to do things like host Winged Wheel Podcast Nights with the Grand Rapids Griffins, griffinshockey.com slash WWP. Get your tickets before they run out. All right. I want to thank all of our name level Patreon supporters. Again, none of this is possible without you. Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Samuel Soderholm, Raymond's Missing Tooth, Icon, Brad's Lord and Savior, Bradley Cleveland, Glenn Brabham, Cider the Ass Kicker, 
Croner's left knee, Ashley Van Conant, Sea Lion, Keenan O'Donoghue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Admiral Matt S. at the Cheesebag Navy, Carl Brutina Nanaluski, Carl Provi, Citizen High Five, Clip Clop Nene, Connor Scovey, Coyote Season Tickets and Anywhere But Tempe, Craig Kibble, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek and Stam, DJ Denton, D-Town, Westside, Exquisitine Buble, Schwinslow, Fergus, member of the Black Eyed Peas, Philip Zadina, Farewell Montage Begins, Philip Zadina, Farewell Montage Ends, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hockey Town Love, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam al Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kalen Wood, King Tone, Marcus, Marlon Winchester, Matt K, Cannon Fodder of the Cheesebag Army, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, R.A., Red 3, Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, Scree and Lube, That's What I Appreciates About You, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, Iser Plan Stan, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, Adam Rose, Andrew Broderick, Axel Sandy Pelica, Big Cheese, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Chuck Buff Chest, the Tarpless Goon, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheeseback Space Force, Connor, Connor Leighton, Corey Prita, Darren Fick, D-Boss Snip Show, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Frank Stanley, Ferk Houston, NHL to Portland Baby, Gene Sullivan, Griffey Boy, James Laporte, James Pridemore, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans Derogatory, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Norris Sider, O'Ophelia, Stephen, Thankful for the Winged Wheel Podcast, The Hodag, The Mexinadian, The Hat123, Winging It in San Diego, X, formerly A.A. Ron, and your second favorite patron. Thank you all so much. We'll talk to you sometime. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.